And welcome back on this Thursday, the uh, the day after the debate. Lee Kelso, I always look forward to having you on from Momo's Health Call Live. But in particular, I'm glad you're on today because for about the next 60 or 17 minutes, we're not going to be talking about the debate. Well, we can. No, 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 no. I'd rather talk about illness and ailments and whatever else you've got because I had enough of that last night. So, Lee, you doing well? Yeah, 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 doing well. Good. Uh, looking forward to this weekend. Have, I think, a couple of uh, really, I think, interesting segments for people this weekend. Well, you've got Greg Russell, who we know, uh, but he is, you know, he's the guy who can pharmaceutically make drugs and mix drugs and give you whatever you need. But he's talking about nutrition support for ADHD. You know, we hear a lot of things like, you know, the, the pill support for ADHD, but nutrient support, this is a different approach. It is. And, you know, it's one that um, we didn't know a lot about. I had, my oldest son was an ADHD kid. Okay. So, man, this, this hits close to home. I remember well the struggle we had with, with that guy. And he's doing fine now. But at the time, man, it was, it was a significant challenge. So I'm very sympathetic to all of this. And I wish at the time there had been somebody like Greg for us to talk to and take a look at what can you do besides the, the prescription drugs, which, you know, are meaningful, but you may want more. And that's what he says often happens. Parents come looking to see, can there, is there anything you can do to help? And that's why he has really put some study into the research on what nutrients, so minerals, vitamins, herbs, can help kids with ADHD, and that's what we're going to cover. Now, can they help kids that are not necessarily diagnosed with ADHD? Maybe you have a kid who's a good kid, pretty good student. He just has trouble focusing. He has trouble you know, staying in the book. He has trouble getting all the way ready for the test. Is this kind of stuff maybe also available for them, or are they just looking right now just merely at those that are diagnosed with ADHD? No, any any parent, that's the beauty of using uh, nutrients for this process is you may have a child that doesn't quite rise to the level of needing the uh, the prescribed medications, but you want to find a little something that helps, and that's where, where Greg is able to step up. One of the things that he finds, and I know this from my world, from, from our life, uh, that, that child that we had was a fussy eater, and he had sort of digestive issues, and Greg says that is so common with kids who have ADHD. And there's now some thinking here that um, because their digestive system may not be performing at its best, they are not getting all the nutrients that they could could require. So they, they may not be getting all the B vitamins in particular, the vitamin D, iron, magnesium, all of those things can make a difference for kids. There is very strong evidence that kids with ADHD do have some form of gut microbiome disruption, so that's one place that we can start. See, gut, biome, we've hit these words before, uh, so now it's kind of raising its ugly head again, even in this. And some people who maybe would have never paid attention to some of your gut biome discussions, they're sitting there right now, and I know right now we've got moms and dads sitting in the car, and they're looking in the rearview mirror and seeing the kid, and they're thinking, honey, maybe we need to check that out. Well, you know, it's important. Um, I've, I've said it before, and, and I really think in the next decade, what we're going to learn about this whole gut-brain interaction is just going to blow people away. But what we know, the studies show, 
that a lot of the important brain chemicals originate in your gut, believe it or not. These neurotransmitters, serotonin, dopamine, those are all made from compounds that originate in the gut. Part of that is what's released by bacteria, compounds that they release, your body then takes and, and reformulates or uses components and generates these important brain chemicals. The way that these stimulants work, according to Greg, is the, the uh, Ritalin and, and Stratera and Adderall that kids take for ADHD. One of the things that they do is they block the uptake of these neurotransmitters. So they slow, they, they make more of those neurotransmitters available for the brain. And so why not start at the beginning and generate more of these elements in the gut? So that's one of the things that these uh, nutritive supports can do, can help your, your gut generate more of those neurotransmitter origin chemicals. And so it's kind of getting to the root of the problem yeah. that seems to make a difference. Wow. It's almost, like, it's almost like, you know, we're going to do some work up here, so we're going to block that off ramp from the freeway. So you just go right on by. We don't need you getting off the freeway right here. We're going to stop some stuff between the gut and the brain. Is that right? It's a good explanation. It's a good way to think about it. And, you know, one of the challenges is with children, my son, for example, he did not like how those the, the stimulants made him feel. Yeah. And he he was hiding the pills instead of taking them. Oh, no kidding? <laughs> oh, I, Pat, I remember we, we we found a potted plant that when you lift up the, uh, the moss <laughs> that we had on the top of the soil, <laughs> there was a stash of pills. That <laughs> so was one of the most expensive you know, plants a, in your house, wasn't it? <laughs> you know, in a six-year-old brain, that made sense. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Let's see if it helps the plant. If the plant gets smarter, I might start taking them. Uh, exactly. Yeah, well, that that's incredible. So ADHD, which is, it's still, we don't hear it quite as often as we used to, unless like you, unless you have a child that's dealing with it, and then you're like, yeah, now tell me more what I need more. Uh, but the gut back, the gut bacteria uh, connection again starts to intrigue me again. So we're going to listen to that first half hour. Uh, that's with Lee, and he's talking to Greg Russell uh, from Fort Wayne Custom Rx, and that'll be in that first half hour of the program on Saturday from 9 to 9.30. At 9.30, um, I don't know if you're taking a veterinarian switch here or something, but you're talking about how animals pose a pandemic risk. You've got to explain that to me. Yeah, so I found a report because, you know, Pat, I live such an exciting life. I found a report <laughs> that took a look at how are animals raised on the farm and exotic animals imported into the country, how are they potentially the source of a next pandemic? Hmm. So we have Ann Linder, who is with the Harvard Law School. They were involved in putting together this study of what's out there and how could animals exposure transfer into humans viruses and other things that become a risk to create a pandemic so would we are, are they saying that we would get this from being a, a, around the animals like in other words is this a pandemic that's just going to be in the animal world or is there some concern that this jumps to us oh no it's all about jumping to us so you know, I, I'm one of those guys, I'm not buying the whole wet market theory of COVID in yep. China, the Wuhan market, yep. you know, I, I'm not buying that. I've seen so much evidence to me that it's a lab leak. So let's set that aside for now. But the whole idea that it, that, that exposed, the idea of animals 
we're exposed to animals, a virus jumps into humans, and then it, 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 it starts to spread between humans. That's what they're worried about here. And, you know, there's history. There's history about this. Um, the Believe it or not, the, the research indicates that the Spanish flu pandemic of, tw- of 1917 actually started on a chicken farm in Kansas. What? So, yeah, so true. So they think that what happened was this an avian flu, right. a bird flu, transmitted, kind of mortified itself into something that can affect humans, and then it started jumping from human to human and then just caught fire Holy cow. around the world and killed millions of people. So that's, that's the fear that something like that could happen again. And the whole idea of pigs and chickens, um, they are both good repositories where viruses can mix and mingle and blend and create potentially something dangerous. You know, it's, it's, just- it's, it's interesting you brought this up, and I hate to throw you off here, but I'm watching a show yesterday morning. Uh, and, you know, I watch one of those channels that has like three or four different vets who have programs on their channel. Uh, and there's one up in Michigan, and I like watching him. And he goes out for a, an emergency call on a farm, and he goes out there, and this cow is down. From the time they called him until he drove out, the cow had already died. It showed no signs of illness until late the night before. So in under 12 hours, this cow goes from standing there and mooing and eating and everything, and now it's dead. And then as he examines it, uh, he literally cuts open the gut of the animal while he's standing there, and he goes, well, this looks like, and he named the kind of disease it was and everything, and the farmer just looked freaked because the farmer said, I just bought that cow three weeks ago from such and such a farm. And, and the doctor said, look, you have to check these animals as soon as you get them because you don't know that they're carrying something that you didn't know you just paid for, and it will jump from cow to cow and then to horse and then to pig, and it will jump far faster than you can even imagine. And I was like, holy cow. Forgive yeah, the pun. Forgive the pun. Pole, I bet that was Dr. Pole, wasn't <laughs> it? It was Dr. Pole, who's he's so funny, his accent, and he's just so slap happy. But the guy is yeah. brilliant, and he knows his stuff. Yeah. yeah, I agree. But that is exactly what they're talking about here. So this report indicates that there are literally millions of animals that are brought into the United States, exotic animals yep. uh, and other things, and they are not tested. They are not checked. And so we don't know what are you bringing into the country. And then there's the whole issue of wild animals transmitting into domestic animals. So one of the things that Ann Linder talks about is how uh, the avian flu, the bird flu, can get started in a wild population, but then transfer over into the commercial chicken farms. And it can happen in a number of ways, not the least of which is, this whole idea of free-range chickens where they, they can go outside, that exposes them potentially to a wild virus that then brings it back into the barn. And we are now going through an avian flu epidemic, and 58 million chickens and turkeys in this country have been euthanized this year, and actually going back to 2022. Last 58 million? 58 million because they were infected with an avian flu. And so they, when that happens, when your flock's infected, you, you have to put them all down. Well, that, that, that's, so that's, you know, you do all that in one year. That's a lot of farms, chicken farms, that now they're financially really on the hook and they might be on the edge of totally going under. You just can't overcome that in a year. 
And Indiana is one of the leading egg producing states in the nation. And, you know, this whole issue of the, the avian flu is one of the reasons that egg prices went so crazy for a while there. But that whole close interaction between you, you've got the potential of the virus modifying itself in a chicken that becomes infectious to humans and then starts spreading, spreading, spreading. We just had some cases up in Michigan where kids went to the county fair and were exposed to pigs. And these kids came down, two children came down with a swine flu. Really? And so far, yep. And it did not spread to other kids, and they were treated, and they're going to be fine. But that's exactly what this report is pointing out, is there are opportunities, and and there are, this blew me away, Pat. Yeah. This report found there are wet markets in New York. There are 84 wet markets in New York, live animal markets where animals are stored, slaughtered on site, and processed. And, and some of them are exotic animals. Most are not but some are. And so it's not just Wuhan that still that risk exists here. And this report is not trying to, to blow us out of the water and make everybody frightened, but there's the re- point of this report is we do not do enough monitoring. Right. There's too much after the fact, right. after it goes bad sort of examination. So this report is saying, look, here's all these touch points where we can have a bad thing happen so let's start looking at those, plan for that, and create intelligent policy. And, you know, gosh, I, let me be clear here, because I know a lot of farm families listen to WoWo. And uh, Rob Winters and I have talked about this many times, about how the general public does not know how hard livestock producers work to protect their flock, protect their herd, and protect us. Right. So that is, I don't want to be seen as painting a bad light there. These people work very hard, and they take it very seriously because, as you pointed out, they have the greatest financial risk. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, they are – this one farmer that was on the Dr. Pohl show, he was terrified that something was going to happen. He goes, what if we would have slaughtered that cow and we would have sold meat and there would have been something in the meat? And yeah. you could just see the absolute fear in his life. Can you possibly imagine? That, that absolutely terrifies me. Well, and, you know, this report points out that the USDA food inspectors are expected to are expected. They are expected to look at hundreds of carcasses per hour and in that process, keep us all safe. Right. So, you know, have we dodged a bullet? I, you know, I, I'm no expert. I don't know. The report says we ought to be aware of this risk. And so that's what we're doing in this segment is just talking through where are those touch points? What are the concerns? What might we need to do? The exotic pet trade in America. She says that we import 200 million live animals a year in the United States with only very minimal health checks. So, yeah, they're, they're, we're going to have to get on top of that. We're going to have to get on top of that. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, uh, and, and before you know it, we might want to start checking people coming into the country. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> but but listen, Lee, thank you. It sounds like the show this Saturday uh, is going to be good. It also sounds like it might be a little bit sobering uh, for those who wonder what's going on with our livestock and our animals that we have living on our farms or in our houses uh, and animals that might end up on our plates. And also in your first half hour with Greg Russell, as you talk about nutritional support 
for ADHD. A lot of people have a lot of reasons to listen. I hope they do this Saturday from 9 to 10 right here on WoWo. Lee Kelso for today. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, and we will see you next week. Podcasts by Federated Media.